like, what's the thesis statement? <laughs> I have no oh, thesis historian statement. statement. Historian's plan. There's well, you know, the full title is historian explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. Mm. So I guess that's the thesis statement. Probably my advisors wouldn't sign off on it, but here, know. well, cheers to that. <laughs> yeah, they are cheers, Lachaim. So this is a very special day for historian explaining because now we have two historians. To tell you why everything you know oh, is Oh, do wrong. you not usually have <laughs> other historians? You, you no. like to maintain the historian. This is, no, this is the first time I've had another historian. And I, Holy. And I'm going to tell you. That's a you, big responsibility. No, no. I'm going to tell Oh, my God. It is purely out of laziness. It is purely out of laziness. Or do you just not hang out with other historians? I, I mean, some. If I were not so lazy, I would have had them on as guests as well by now. But it's really technology is the barrier. You've seen how like uncomfortable I am with anything electronic. Yeah, if we could do podcasts through candles. I would it, so it would do fine. it in a yeah, second. Or like, you know, tin cans and I, I would feel like those would you'd be tin cans are too rusty. Yeah, yeah. You could run into some tetanus. trouble there. Yeah, you could run into trouble. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, we have two historians to tell you why everything you know is wrong. And so I have in my Victorian garret here with me, Michael J. Simpson, who is a friend of mine, who has multiple master's degrees in history and is currently in the PhD program at Brown in Providence. And Michael and I are friends because he contacted me mm-hmm. about my research about Rhode Island. And I was like, whoa, somebody noticed I did research about Rhode Island. Yeah. So that is our initial like common ground, right? And so everyone knows Rhode Island is the correct state. It is, it is what every state should be like. Oh, it is? My, yeah. You seem to not totally agree. Well... <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm interested to hear more about why you feel that way, and then I can tell you. But that's new. That's news to me. I wouldn't say that. Well, I love Rhode Island. I'm just gonna get a little more punch. Is that all right? As you continue? take punch, okay. take punch. And I don't like anywhere. Everyone else. So, oh, and I should explain. I I made some punch. Do you not usually make punch. Well, like not every day. What do you think? No, but historian No, no, I don't. It's usually just me, Michael. You don't you don't realize this? It's usually just me. Uh, so I made punch, which is a colonial thing. And I learned the principle of punch, the, the idea of punch. Punch is like an artificial wine yeah. that you can concoct at any time mm-hmm. if you have like fruit with you. Mm-hmm. And so I learned that the basic idea is you take citrus rind and you mash it up with coarse sugar, like mm-hmm. demerara sugar, mm-hmm. and you let it leach out the citrus oil okay. out of the rind. And then you pour hot water over that and you have this like weird like tart citrusy soup and then you add liquor of course usually rum usually rum yeah yeah. which also preserves forever so you can kind of make this concoction anytime while you're out there at sea Mm -hmm. and hence it's like it's it's a it's a thing for long voyages it's also more of like a common person thing than it would than wine would be right is that yeah i guess it because you can make it at any time so it you can just kind of and you can make it as strong as you want right. you know and i used jamaican white rum ray and nephew which oh, so is fantastic and it's very subtle and so you can pour lots of it like you can sip it it's that smooth mm-hmm. so you can pour any amount of it but i went i went kind of light on this one i went kind of light because i don't want to be too snockered 
for historians explaining. That, yeah, that's for my podcast where we'll, we'll be. Yes, it's not, it's a that's that it's a will be kind of... that. That's what will happen on Michael's podcast when it comes about. So, yeah, I love Rhode Island because it's like the correct size. Like that's about how big a state should be, and Providence is like the correct size city. Okay, and it's like it's walkable. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. There's art, there's theater, like everything you okay. would want in a city, but like concentrated into like a manageable size place. Mm-hmm. So I think it's fantastic. And does Thomas Dore factor in at all into your kind of affection well, for the state? I am a little pro-insurrection, yeah. but I did my research on 18th century Rhode Island, mm. and I have like barely even gotten anywhere near that in no. historian explaining. Yeah. I'm like very slowly oh, working my you're, way you're up. moving chronologically. Roughly, you know, I did Middle Ages yeah. and then I did Early Modern, and I'm like just getting to some colonial topics now. So I thought it it would be really cool to talk to you mm-hmm. because you work on earlier colonial, mm-hmm. also some on Rhode Island, mm-hmm. like New England generally, mm-hmm. right? And a lot British Atlantic, British Atlantic. This yeah. is the correct terminology mm-hmm. now. It's Atlantic world. Correct. Everybody's an Atlantic Creole. Uh, we may get to some Atlantic Creoles. Ira right? Berlin bringing in Ira. <laughs> I'm not up to date. I'm not up well, to date. Well, we I'm yeah. Still... We're, we're, there's a battle right now of whether or not we are allowed to say Atlantic Creole anymore, and I'm pro saying oh, it. Okay, okay. So, so I got on your good side there already. Okay, good. We're off. We're off to the the right start. Send the right um, dog whistles. For yeah. Me. So okay. So tell us about what you research. So how long have you oh. been working on Rhode Island or New England more broadly? Um, yeah, I would say that it's more focused in my last two years at Brown. Uh, the focus is on British Atlantic, so the of, of which, you know, I think Newport's port was one of the major centers uh, at this point in time. There's five, five, five major centers on the Atlantic coast. There was Charleston, New York. Philadelphia, Boston, and Newport. Mm-hmm. Um, and so studying, you know, at any one of those ports I think is important. There's obviously Newport plays a very large role in the transatlantic slave trade. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's partic- that, during that particular point in time, uh, the port was uh, rather important um, and then kind of decreased in importance following the American Revolution. Yeah. Um, so that's, I kind of focus on the entire, so it's kind of, from the colonial period into the revolutionary period. And I don't really want to go into the 1800s because I don't have time for that. Um, but we'll see where yeah. the sources take me, as yeah. they say. Well, Newport is, is a really great place for this kind of research, I think, because, like you said, it like crashed after the revolution. Mm-hmm. And, and Providence kind of like danced on their grave, like, mm-hmm. we've overtaken you. And so there wasn't development in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And so it's like preserved. Well, yes, and also, yeah. So a lot of that has to do with the blight, the urban blight that was happening. Mm-hmm. It was impoverished. Uh, but also, yeah. yeah, but also because of Doris Duke, um, yeah. who as uh, the you know, tobacco heiress, uh, kind of comes from the family that founded Duke University, or at least gave them a bunch of money so that they named the university yeah. after her. Yeah. Them, um, but yeah, she in the 1950s and 1960s realized the value of that space and moved quickly to essentially restore what she could and now it's a result of i believe it's the um, newport restoration foundation Mm -hmm. um rents these homes these colonial homes throughout newport to you know private families etc or businesses and and if if i'm not mistaken like in the 50s developers were starting to move in Mm -hmm. and saying oh let's just tear down all these like old whalers houses Mm -hmm. and such Mm -hmm. 
and put up new buildings. And she started like buying up whole blocks, right. <laughs> whole streets, which were of like abandoned buildings at the time. Right, it's not right, like dilapidated. It was, yeah. Right, definitely. And some of these times, or in some of the instances, she would uh, take the home itself and move it to a, a, a lot mm, that she had mm-hmm. bought and so that they would still you know develop in that space but she would preserve the, the actual the physical structure home. so yeah. a lot of times when you are doing this particular kind of research in newport uh more like kind of sp- uh, place-based and focused around homes in general you have to really follow the record back appropriately because you might be looking at a house that wasn't there you know right. say in the 18th century it was right. only moved there in the 20th century yeah yeah Thanks to Doris. Yeah. Thanks, Doris. And Doris herself, you know, she's got her own crazy stories. I mean, allegedly mm-hmm. she murdered her butler, which is always, or chauffeur, mm-hmm. excuse me. Like, he got out of the car to, to go open the gate, and then she just drove the car into the gate and smushed him between the gate and the front of the... Oh, wow. This no. happened in Newport, you know, 1950s, 60s. She was, like, a pretty important socialite, so, like, no one really... Yeah, when you're a socialite like, heiress, you can you can bump off a few servants, At least right? one. Who's gonna... At least, I think you're allowed at least one a year. Yeah, at least, right. It's an, part of your allowance. In the club. Okay, wow. So that's that's pretty gothic, too. There's a lot of gothic around, uh, yeah, a around lot of, Newport. Yeah, I mean, not as much as Providence, but... yeah. But let's, how about, we'll go back, we'll go back maybe to Newport Mm. and the weirdness all around, Mm. around Rhode Island. Okay. But this year, 2020, right, is the 400th Uh anniversary of Plymouth. So I I don't know if we'll even necessarily get into that today. We can, we can leave that till another time. Yeah. Yeah. Into 1620 and Plymouth and 1621. You know, I talked a while ago about the first Thanksgiving and quotation Mm. marks and all that mythology right Mm. but i think it's interesting now to talk to you about what you're working on that actually predates that right right and is about kind of the long complicated prelude Mm -hmm. and the interaction between europeans and indigenous people Mm -hmm. before there was any colony Mm -hmm. and i didn't even realize so so the paper that you told me you're working on now mm-hmm. deals with like knowledge and control of plants, mm-hmm. right? So, so what, it, what is it about? It's about the influence of indigenous medicine women on British Atlantic Enlightenment thinkers. So that's the kind of elevator pitch right there. Uh, okay. But the idea is that there's kind of there's been consistent silence and erasure of indigenous people throughout the historiography, particularly. Um, indigenous women Uh, and so I was kind of looking for a project that could kind of take them from the peripheries of the historiography and bring them center stage where I believe a lot of them belong in this instance um, because you have these kind of British Atlantic Enlightenment thinkers who are trafficking in knowledge whether or trafficking in many things whether it be enslaved people or rum or other Mm. West Indies commodities but also knowledge Um, and as they're tracking this knowledge they're also, you know, um, dealing with things like plant knowledge and the medici- medicinal benefits of that knowledge. Um, and nine times out of ten or ten times out of ten, they obtain that medicinal knowledge from indigenous people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the time of contact, gender roles were switching and shifting. But most of the pre-contact gender roles of, in particular, say, like the Northeastern Algonquian uh, native traditions... You, the the uh, plant realm was the realm of women. Mm. Um, and so, you know, if there was going to be medicinal knowledge, it was going to be coming from a woman. And so you have someone, <clears throat> you have these British Atlantic Enlightenment thinkers who are having these, like, 
you know, candlelight, like late night conversations. And they're saying, oh, hey, did you know about like this? Well, so one may say, oh, I'm so-and-so in my congregation because I'm a pastor, like is having this this bad medical issue. And, you know, the particular time that I'm think I'm talking about right now and the source I'm talking about when I'm speaking about this is from 1743. It's about the time they're they're founding what eventually becomes the Redwood Library. Um, Redwood Library is one of the oldest community libraries in the country, or is the lo- oldest community library in the country? And it's in Newport, <clears throat> right? It's in Newport, and they have um, they have you know you can look at their original book list what they had in 1740s, 1750s, and they have the great books of you know India, China, Japan, Greece, mm-hmm. Egypt. You know, they, they, it's this point in time that the world is becoming, you know, very globalized. And so they have mm-hmm. access to the classical texts and they're, and they're at that, at the point in time beginning to become translated into English. But most of these people would have also spoken maybe German or Latin, uh, right. that these would have maybe already been in. Um, and so they have that access to all this wisdom. Uh, and yet, you know, in these candlelight conversations are still reliant on the medicinal knowledge of indigenous women. Uh, of their you know local communities um and right. so and, what... they, and they don't necessarily say that certainly not in writing their their sources are kind of invisible right. right and so this is the second aspect of my research so i focus on it's a psychological concept sociological concept um that was first really kind of brought into the historiography by a woman named sybilla fisher who i believe taught at columbia but she was actually taught at nyu while i was there and she uh, talks about disavowal in relation to the Haitian Revolution and kind of how we talk about this age of, or can, the historiography has talked about the age of revolution uh, and been certainly inclusive of the American Revolution and the French Revolution, and maybe if it's good, the Bolo- Bolivarian Revolutions in South America. But they usually mm-hmm. happen to forget like, the only, in my, in my mind, one of the true democratic revolutions yeah. uh the atlantic world which is the, Haitian the only revolution. successful slave revolution or yeah. only permanently successful yeah i think maybe slave revolution i'm not sure if that's a true yeah. statement but and so she talks about it in relation to the haitian revolution and disavowal so her main her main book is called modernity disavowed and it's about kind of the connection of modernity to the again i mean the atlantic world these this age of revolutions but particularly the haitian revolution so she connects that a woman named Marcy Norton kind of builds on this, um, you know, the historian um, builds on this concept of disavowal and, and talking about uh, indigenous technology, which is kind of where I build on did it. Did she write the one about chocolate? She did. Because I, I love that. Mm-hmm. I don't know a lot of her work, but the work about chocolate, she makes the point that, in fact, when Europeans first learned about chocolate, mm-hmm. they really mimicked very closely the way indigenous Mexican people processed and made and made chocolate. They did not simply switch it into a European confection. Well, and also you'll like this part too, is that it was also a, a particular um, level of society that would be allowed to be drinking it in Mexico. Mm, mm-hmm, right. right. Mexico is a, a tiered, not like classed yeah, society, yeah. but it certainly had different castes. Yes. And only the higher castes would be drinking this because it was like a gourmet. And right. then it was like a, a prestige a, drink. Right. Yeah. And yeah. that's who ended up drinking it also in Europe. And so they right. just kind of moved that and transitioned it over into Europe. And, and that's, you know, and she d- talks a lot about, Marcy Norton talks a lot about how they had to kind of create the chocolate market in the same way that they created the tobacco market. They yeah. just didn't know what that is. I, they originally called, the original way to take tobacco was called drinking tobacco because they didn't have a concept of even like smoking. smoking. And Yeah, this was all new to them. Yeah. Okay. 
So currently, you told me you made a paper, which you're going to present at a conference. Yes, the Yale Environmental History Conference. Yale in, Environmental in, History. In April. Excellent, excellent. Advisors love conferences. It's a big, big I actually thing like them. conferences, too. It's one of my favorite okay. parts of being a historian. Because uh, you cool. get to go get drunk with a bunch of other historians <laughs> in another state, and your your university pays for it. Yeah, the being paid for is really good. I'm not as good at the getting drunk part, but I can teach um, you. I, I'm yeah, happy to teach. Well, you. We're working on it. <laughs> but you said that you're working. You're looking particularly at three plants. Yes, right that now, Europeans sort of, you know, in quotation marks, discovered. Mm -hmm. Right. Disavowed. Right. I'm okay. talking about disavowal. Okay. So what are those three? Uh, sassafras. Mm -hmm. um, arrowroot and um, another one that is called that has a couple names one it's called one of the names is called cancer root uh, but it's also known by uh, the local indigenous community uh, like they call it bear corn okay because it kind of looks like a stalk of corn it's a fungus it's like a mushroom almost and it grows in the root roots of oak trees and <laughs> it grows out of the oak tree and uh, it looks like a little uh, thing of corn and bears love it so it's bear corn Okay, so so sassafras, arrowroot, and bear corn. So mm -hmm. why did you pick those three? Well, it's where the sources led me mostly. Uh, it was where the first three places that I kind of found this kind of uh, indigenous disavowal, indigenous the disavowal of indigenous knowledge in these particular ones plants. Uh, sassafras is, I think, where the the sources are leading me the most. Okay, sassafras was the second largest commodity exported after tobacco from North America mm -hmm. uh, in the 17th century. So, and I think, you know, it, what's important about sassafras is that it's a, it's good for both scurvy and syphilis. Mm -hmm. So in the 17th century, those were both very important things, particularly for mm -hmm. sailors. And so they, and they're the ones who would have been in charge of essentially bringing it back and forth. So, so it was extremely valuable for people who are trying to sail back and forth across the ocean. Mm -hmm. And also in Europe where syphilis is spreading, right? Yes. So basically I have a fever and the only the only cure is more sassafras. <laughs> wow. So so sassafras goes back really early. And you mentioned that like Bartholomew Gosnold, he undertook several voyages around North America before then helping to create Jamestown, right? He was one of the people who sort of spearheaded the foundation of Jamestown. It's right? very impressive knowledge you have here. The, no, this, this, I'm not Wikipedia level. Like, <laughs> don't. But, but a lot of his motivation was actually sassafras, right? Mm -hmm. That was a lot of the goal of these undertakings mm -hmm. that were, in some cases, like the first encounters, right, between English and indigenous people. Yeah, right? uh, yeah, and that's what I think is important to point out here too is that um, this is where the when the English or British records start to demonstrate a, a kind of interaction with mm -hmm. the medicinal benefits and value of sassafras. Mm -hmm. The French had been aware of it well, er, much earlier into the 16th century. Mm -hmm. The Spanish as well were, were writing about it. I suspect that the first instance comes from uh, Jacques Cartier's second voyage to okay. the St. Lawrence River, um, where he... Uh, and was that is, the 1560s? Is that right? Uh, oh, I think it's earlier than that. Okay. Double check for me, maybe. I think it's 1530s. Um, but he, uh, in his first voyage to the St. Lawrence River, does what most um, settler explorers do at this particular point in time is they kidnap mm -hmm. uh, the children of the local royals or the local higher caste society members of society um, and bring them back to their home country 
uh, where they teach them the language so that when they come back on another voyage, they have uh, not only tour guides, but translators that can help them better achieve resource extraction. Right. So this is this is a practice that you see over and over again, like multiple cases all through the 15 and 1600s was you encounter new people you don't know the language you want to know about the land and about the valuable stuff you might get there and like the inner tribal mm, the, politics right, the politics the diplomacy yeah mm-hmm. so you kidnap one or several people mm-hmm. take them 50. back Same. yeah 50 a whole village yep. and then they have to learn your language mm-hmm. in captivity right and then they become like the emissaries mm-hmm. and go between because they're also there are they usually try to choose like i said the children of the political caste mm-hmm. um so that when they come back they can aptly fill that role mm-hmm. as like a go-between or an atlantic creole maybe um, <laughs> and it's also i think important to point out that everyone was uh, a lot of these early explorers from from britain and france and and spain they were reading each other's stuff um, so anything that they, anyone, anything that would be, they would be doing and writing about would be published essentially when they would come back and to a, a, a broad reading audience, people would be able to read this particularly, you know, if you're going to be going to the new world, you would seek out these texts and read them before you would go West. Um, mm-hmm. and so the French were reading the Spanish and the British were reading the French and the Spanish. Um, and a lot of, you see a lot of them using and learning the tactics of say, Cortez and Pizarro. Right. I mean, Pizarro read right. Cortez, and so like this yeah. is it. Just they all yeah. kind of build on each other. Um, as yeah, and, and, in, and in those cases, you think of like Cortez and Pizarro. They they took the ruler captive, mm-hmm. right? That was like their way in. Was mm-hmm. just hold the emperor captive, yep. and and they also had translators. You know, La Malinche in Mexico, mm-hmm. and so all of this is like the same kind of formulas right in the mm-hmm. same blueprint mm-hmm. being used again and again so like already by say 1600 even these guys who are kind of coming out of nowhere from england they have like all this knowledge already ready to go mm-hmm. right and all these strategies yeah. and there's already been this whole history of of exchange and conflict and relations between europeans and americans mm-hmm. right all long before 1620 yes right and i didn't really i had vaguely heard of gosnold right Mm -hmm. before before you talked about him uh, a few days ago but he he was a cambridge educated like englishman yeah yeah, who somehow became a mariner he like got in good with walter raleigh so this is still in the elizabethan Mm -hmm. years Mm -hmm. like we're talking about really early like americans do not think of this as american history at all i think But he he sort of spearheads, well, let's go colonize in Virginia, right? And he's the one who actually puts forward the concept of New England, that there's this area in northern Virginia. That's how they thought of it and referred to it, like northern Virginia, that is climatically closer to England. And so they called it New England. And that's what, you know, we now call Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, right? But that whole idea was not created by Puritans, right? This is way before there are any Puritans or even pilgrims or any of that showing up. It was this, like, purely money-making, right, venture of just, like, let's somehow exploit this zone that is climatically familiar or usable for us. And... So he goes in 1602, right? 
and goes around Cape Cod and like names it Cape Cod. Names it Cape Cod. And I think this is something I just want to point to this really great point about Cape Cod. Names it Cape Cod because there's a lot of cod. And that's a valuable thing you can exploit. Very valuable thing yeah. to exploit. But here's that he says that you there was so much cod you could walk across the sea on, on the backs of the cod. <laughs> he says that you can you could drop a basket into the water mm, and yeah. pull it out and it would be full of cod. Yeah. Yeah. And this is to talk about kind of the plenitude of of, of the cod fisheries at this point in time, but it's not like the indigenous people, the indigenous people on the coast at this point in time what number at least in a million. And they are consuming cod at a level that is not drastically reducing the size of the cod fisheries. Cape Cod mm. is named Cape Cod because there was a lot of cod there. Last year and the year before, they had to there was this big issue here in Massachusetts about banning cod and about banning cod fishing. Yeah. All the cod fishers fishermen are, are pissed. Because it's been so depleted, right. it's going to go been extinct. So, right, yeah. exactly. And yeah. it's just that, you know, the indigenous people lived alongside cod for thousands of years. We have that, one of the earliest known, you know, points uh, is like 10,000 years ago. No, 12,000 years ago. Um, and they were able to live with cod for, you know, 12,000 years, 11,000 years and not deplete the cod fisheries. And uh, the Brits got here and within 400 years, we, we can't fish there anymore. So interesting. Yeah, so. yeah. So... So he names it Cape Cod because he he's basically a booster, right? He's like, look at these valuable commodities we've got. Please fund my next expedition. The next, yeah, coming soon. To get more of these goods. And he goes down south of Cape Cod and gets to Martha's Vineyard, Vinland, in quotation yeah. marks, yeah, yeah. which he also names. Correct. So he had After a, his daughter, I think. Right, yeah. He had a yeah. daughter named Martha. Mm -hmm. So he names it Martha's Vineyard. So like this kind of geography of like projecting these like English categories and oh, yeah. labels from oh. this like english money-making booster worldview mm -hmm. is like already there by the end of his voyage in 1602 right mm -hmm. and then apparently he goes to cuttyhunk right mm -hmm. and makes like a little which is now called elizabeth island right right after queen elizabeth Correct. right so cuttyhunk is really interesting for a lot of reasons i want to go there i've never been there it's a private island there's a, there's a society, there's a club that owns the island, and you have to join the club. There's a club that owns the island. Oh wow, <laughs> that's not colonial. It's a different. <laughs> it's a different episode. Yeah, really. <laughs> Where we break into this, the club uh, on Cuddy Hunt. Yeah, right. That's a, that's a, that's a good episode of historians we're live, playing. We're live. But his whole goal in this whole Cuddy Hunk enterprise mm -hmm. is sassafras, right? Mm -hmm. That's what he's after. And so, like you said, he's collecting and probably like working with indigenous people right to get at this commodity right do we know anything about who they were like what nation what language um well so uh yeah so 1616 is a is an important point kind of in this conversation 1616 is uh when there's this massive epidemic along the eastern seaboard so 90 percent of the coastal population is depleted mm -hmm. from say southern maine to cape cod it doesn't, it, it hits, say, what's modern, like Little Compton, um, but it doesn't kind of come west of Narragansett Bay okay. um, in the, at that point in time because, you know, the native, the native people of that side, Narragansett, are the Narragansett. Um, mm -hmm. And there's like a natural barrier. It's a natural barrier, barrier. National, uh, natural barrier geographically, and they also were uh, diplomatically opposed to their neighbor nation at that point in time. 
And so they wouldn't have been trading with them at that point. Uh, so they wouldn't have necessarily right. kind of okay. received the, but they also have a particular relationship with fire. And so they have these annual burns where they, where they burn a good portion of their possessions. Um, and it's kind of meant as a means to mm. like, you know, make, make sure that you're not superfluous in, in your lifestyle. Um, and maybe and like more, Right. Uh, aesthetic. Right. Aesthetic. So, aesthetic? Aesthetic? so there's a aesthetic. disapproval of accumulation yeah. of wealth and goods. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. And so that it seems you're saying also inhibited the spread of the pathogens. Correct. Right. Okay. And that's at least the story they tell. Okay. Um, and I think William Wood, who, if you're really into this point in time, you should read uh, William Wood's Good News from New England. Um, which he, I think he's writing in the, I think he writes in 1630. He's great. And he, what he talks about when he says about this is he's, he attributes their survival, their survival to their, their connection to fire. Or they, he says they have big mm. powwows, which is what these big fire burns are that I was talking right. about. Okay. Um, so in, it's in this vacuum of 90% of the coastal population um, that the Wampanoag appear, who are the, okay. the, can, the tribal group that emerges following the displacement of, of I guess, 10% of the remaining population. Mm-hmm. Um, they form together in much smaller tribal groups, spread over much larger distances of land. Um, and it's that's why in 1620, when um, the pilgrims arrive, that Massasoit reaches out to them mm-hmm. because he is looking for a powerful ally to combat the Narragansett, who are his rival, right. because they withstood this plague from four years prior and can now hold 30,000 warriors and you know can essentially maintain control of the space and they don't want to do that yeah and it's that tribal conflict that the pilgrims and the and the british exploit to then gain access to indigenous land um, right. Which, again, you know, comes from things that they would have learned from the French, things they would have learned from the Spanish. And then don't forget that the Spanish themselves come from their own Roman tradition. They then have this kind of ancient war tactics of divide and conquer that is, again, still yeah. not new. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's very important that when eventually these Plymouth pilgrims show up, they're stepping into a, like, volatile, really power vacuum mm-hmm. right because of this and the the epidemic it was largely hepatitis is that right that's i think that's mostly, what i remember that's most so there's a guy uh, there's a great book about it called rationalizing epidemics um and in it mm-hmm. they the the author david jones talks about how it could be multiple things but he also believes it's hepatitis i don't remember which one like a b or c uh, yeah, I don't know. But it was spread by water, like consumption of water. That's well, just it was, what I remember. It, the idea is that there was a group of Frenchmen uh, who shipwrecked in 1616. Okay. And then in basic tribal traditions of that period of time, they were distributed like as commodities amongst mm-hmm. the tribal groups along the coast, which eventually then is the reason why all those tribal communities were the ones that were attacked by that. Ec- they all epidemic. get the pathogens. Yeah. So so there's a... a, a dramatic drop in population mm-hmm. whole villages are wiped out right and yeah they, they say that um there were one of the authors calls it Gol- golgotha golgotha g-o-l-g-o-l it's the mm-hmm. site where um the crucifixion the crucifixion happens mm-hmm. because there's yeah. just bodies strewn everywhere mm-hmm. and they didn't have time some of the some of the people that the pathogen attacked so quickly they didn't have time to bury the dead and so people are just 
died on the, on the roadside. Yeah, yeah right. Um, and I think Golgotha means like the hill of skulls. Yes, right. Exactly. So, so it was a huge disaster, mm-hmm. right? So the Wampanoag, and this is another thing to understand, is that when you look at indigenous people, it's like there aren't these clear lines on the map demarcating like national groups like you'd expect. I well, I I push back on that because okay. um, a lot of the political um, and national boundaries that we use today, particularly in North America, particularly in the United States, our vestiges from pre-existing tribal polities. So right. for example, the dis- the distinction or the um, border, what's the word I'm going to the political border between the Niantic and the Pequot in southern Rhode Island and southern Connecticut was the Pawcatuck River. Mm-hmm. And that today exists as the national or the, as the p- political right, boundary right. between Rhode Island and Connecticut. So it more or less maps on. I believe that there's, a, I think it's similar with the uh, the the political boundaries between Maine and New Hampshire, uh, the Merrimack River, I think, mm-hmm. or the Pis- mm-hmm. Piscataqua River. Piscataqua. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah. Um, you know, and that that tribal tribal groups used natural boundaries yeah. as a means of demarcating. Demarcating. Yeah. So there wasn't. It wasn't. Maybe there would be. It wouldn't be kind of the ways in which white people would eventually do it, which is like a straight line in one direction, kind of, a, or along a latitude. Yeah. Line. Well, and and. But also, I think what I'm trying to say is the the membership in the groups, like groups sometimes were destroyed by war or natural disasters, and people would go and kind of merge into other groups, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so people would shift around, yeah. right? And, and, you, and then on, on kind of opposing political borders, so say in this dis- distinction when I'm talking about the Pocketuck River, um, you would have Pequot on the western side and the Niantic on the eastern side, but along the river, you would have people that were both Pequot and Niantic. Right, and, and this has kind of come up politically, too, currently, right? I mean, do you know about the whole... Uh, conflict over the land that Brown University owns, Hoffenreffer, right? Mm-hmm. And part of the dispute was there is a group, okay, Pocanocket. This, this is yes, this is sensitive area, but let's go. Okay, ahead. okay, <laughs> Pocanocket. But we don't have to. We don't have to get into it. But just that part of the disagreement was that a group who identified themselves as Pocanocket said we have an ancestral connection to this site, mm-hmm. right? And others disputed that such a group still existed, right? Mm-hmm. And basically said, well, no, that, that group was destroyed and died out at such and such point in time. Mm-hmm. But really, when a group is fragmented, sometimes they go over and rejoin other confederations, other groupings, yep. but they don't completely lose that prior identity either. Oh, no, not right? at all. Yeah, yeah. So it's sort of a fallacy to think, well, if, if we don't have the Poconokit anymore, that means no one is has that identity anymore right yeah i think in that in that particular disagreement though one of the main issues is that they weren't also incorporating the pre-existing federally recognized tribes so the pocono are not a federally recognized tribe and federal recognition Mm. has its own problematic kind of um, story but at this point in time you have people who have worked hard to demonstrate continuity which Mm -hmm. is an important aspect of federal recognition to say that you know we are maintaining particular traditions from pre-contact um, which the Wampanoag have demonstrated, uh, both the Mashpee and Aquinnah are two different tribal, re- federally recognized uh, tribes. Yeah. And the Mashpee, it was just pretty recent, right? The Mashpee 2005, Wampanoag. 2006, I think, yeah. Okay, right, so it was, mm-hmm. it was 21st century, right? Mm-hmm. And so and the Aquinnah are, Aquina, yeah. Aquina yeah. are on Martha's Vineyard. Yep. And they're also called Gayhead. 
um, uh, right. Gayhead Wampanoag. But Gayhead is also the name. Another the name, name of this... for Aquina. Right. Another like name the of Western the Western cliffs. Yeah. Of Martha's Vineyard. Yeah. And there's a whole complicated history there, right? Mashpee was a praying, so-called praying Indian town. Yes. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, but the... that's that's one of the reasons why they they were able to demonstrate their continuity is because mm-hmm. they had learned how to read and write and, and speak English from an early age, from an early period in time. Right. And so all that was early, like very early translated. Okay. So you have um, the first Bible is printed in North America is, is a bilingual Bible written in Wampanoag oh, and wow. English by a guy named John Eliot. He translated the whole Bible. So um, Eliot was sort of the big mastermind of this idea of creating in towns of Indian Christians, mm-hmm. right, with their own churches. Which is distinct from say what the Spanish or the French right. practice would have been because, you know, Catholics don't want, you know, their followers to be able to essentially know and read it. They're they're that's up mm-hmm. to the priest. Um, and yeah. so it would be less likely that you would have a priest that would say be native. Whereas the Protestants want everything to be translated, want direct access, right. public access to the God. Scripture is the right. basis of the whole teaching. And so yeah. like the idea is that it were that they need to produce it for in, in an indigenous language for indigenous people. Uh, and to train indigenous ministers. Um, and so you have early on in the sixteen hundreds you have Indian authors, native authors from southern New England, um, who are bilingual and who are preaching. Um, which I think is very interesting. Yeah, yeah. And if any, if anyone goes to Mashpee on Cape Cod, there is the there's a very old Baptist meeting house, right? Mashpee Wampanoag mm-hmm. Baptist Meeting House and Cemetery, mm-hmm. and a little museum, mm-hmm. uh, which is is pretty cool. And they have they're they they have a reservation, and they do a powwow mm-hmm. every year in August. Right, they have a powwow. Uh, and one of the best parts of that powwow is what they call it's called Fireball. Oh my God! Do you know about this? I do know about Fireball. Oh, okay, yeah. Fireball is... Is it okay to, like, talk about it? Oh, or is totally. it, like, what happens if Fireball stays apart? Okay. <laughs> well, no, you can't uh, You can't video it. It's okay. It's a sacred ceremony. Okay. Um, but we can t- certainly talk about it. Okay. Yeah, and that gets more people to go to the powwow, and that's what they want, because then you pay them for the powwow. That's good. So, give yeah. give money to go to the powwow. Yeah, yeah So, yeah, I, I witnessed Fireball you did. quite by accident oh, several years ago. Oh, I did. Oh, it's so awesome. What happened is I went, I was like, I'll take a look at the powwow, but mm-hmm. it was... it was. But it you was, went on Sunday. I guess it must have been. Yeah, so they only do it one day out of the three days. It's only done once yeah. a year, right? Yep. And it was like a county fair. It was mm-hmm. cool. They had some, you know, very much indigenous fair. art, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, basically like a county fair. And I asked, like, well, is there any special event or ceremony or anything? And and the lady at the booth said, well, there's Fireball tonight. Yeah, of course. And I was like, oh, Fireball? Okay. <laughs> and she said, yeah, you know, around eight after it gets dark. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, I guess I'll come back around eight. So I did with my brother and, and his friend. And oh my Lord, like I didn't know what the heck it was. I didn't know anything. You didn't know what you're getting yourself into. I just saw there was a large field with a little fire pit in the center. And I thought, well, maybe, I don't know, is it a dance or something? I don't know. But the this, you know, a bunch of young people start coming out into this open field. There's a little fire in a pit in the center. I think it's a traditionally young men. I think it's traditional. I think yeah. they probably now have adjusted it so they allow women. Okay. Uh, but I think it's mostly men, if not all. At that time, it was. It looked like it was all men aged maybe about 14 to 20, 21 or yep. so. Yep. And then an older gentleman comes out carrying uh, torches and they put 
two pairs of torches at either end of mm-hmm. this field. And I still am totally clueless. Just like, <laughs> what are they going to do? Is this some kind of ceremony? Why are these guys lined up in two rows? And then he takes out like a big black ball and like dips it in the fire mm-hmm. and lights it on fire. And it's like the size of like a large soccer ball. Yeah, like a big kickball. Like a big kickball, yeah. right? And lights it on fire. It's flaming. It's like covered in some kind of resin or something. Yeah, it would be like whale oil or something traditionally. Originally, that, yeah. right. Okay. And he throws it up in the air and the young men run at it <laughs> and like form a little circle around it. And I was like, oh, fireball. Yeah. It's a game, right? Well. well. It's a contest. We'll get right? in there. We'll get into this. <laughs> I just, I'm just, I, I just want to hear your perspective, and then we'll, then we'll tell you how everything you said was wrong. In, okay. In okay. The, in the <laughs> right. Right. Thesis statement. So, so they all run towards it and form a circle, and they don't just like kick at it like soccer, but they do. They like prepare. They like put dust or dirt like on their hands and feet and like hit it, and. Then they'll all run after it and the same thing back and forth around this field. And I realize the torches are goals Correct. and they're scoring goals mm-hmm. and they're keeping score and people are like loving it. They're oh, yeah. like shouting. They've got their kids on their shoulders. Oh, yeah. It's like the most exciting. It's very exciting. It's like the most exciting football game. They're totally into it. And then, but like the funny thing was there was this announcer with a microphone and at the same time, it's like. It also is like a very normal, like rural America oh, yeah. thing at the same time. And he's like, oh, we got to wrap up in 10 minutes. And like everyone groans, no. And he says, all right, well, 10, 10 more minutes, 10 more minutes. <laughs> and they go a little longer, but then they yeah. have to wrap it up. And the score is three to two, and that's Fireball mm-hmm. 2005 or whatever mm-hmm. it was. And I was just blown away. I was like, this was in no way anything I was expecting. And I mean, my understanding, I don't really know much about it. I read a little bit later and my understanding was that it's like um, it's spiritual and healing and you can like play fireball Mm -hmm. on behalf of someone else as like a way of like helping them. So so it I think as far as I understand it, I think it's okay. But I I think that it's we, we should work to not call it a game. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's more serious. It's certainly fun, and it's certainly like an exuberant experience when you go and you witness mm-hmm. it. In the same way that going and watch a football game can be, or a rugby game, I think is really ultimately how crazy it is. Or ultimate frisbee if you're out there getting crazy. <laughs> um, but um, what they do is essentially the 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 men that young men that decide to do this decide like six months ahead of time. So they're like, okay, okay. Six months from now, I am going to participate in Fireball. Mm-hmm. And then they prey on it. And they okay. prey on it for like six months because there's a particular person in their life who's dealing mm-hmm. with cancer, dealing with some sort of illness, ALS, whatever, alcoholism, uh-huh. yeah, whatever yeah. it may be. And um, they work, they focus on them and they prey on them over the six-month period. And then because they are young, healthy, and able-bodied, go and and interact with this fire and i kind of said already that indigenous people have particular connections mm-hmm. with fire it's still wampanoag it's different a little bit different than narragansett but there's still this this powerful connection um to fire and what they do is they withstand mm-hmm. the pain of being burned mm-hmm. um and that pain that they withstand is pain that the loved one that they had prayed on does not have to take. Okay. 
And so the more that they touch it, the more honorable they become because they're just essentially absorbing more pain for people who are feeling pain. Um, and so that's also why it's exciting. So the people there are excited that these men get to do this work for these people that are hurt, sick, ill. Um, right. And so while it's very fun and there's a lot of whoops and you know, <laughs> everybody is really pumped, it's also a very serious experience. Yeah. Um, and what they do too, is, which I think is really cool, at least in the one I saw, which was last year, is they, they'll open it up and it'll be, okay, all Wampanoags first. You know, only Wampanoag can, can apply. And if okay. you're and if you're listening when they do the the announcing, they say people like the the guy who is the announcer is it's just essentially everyone's uncle. Like he knows yeah. everyone and what yeah. tribe they're from, and so he'll say, "Oh, here's so and so," like and he's got it. He's got the ball. He's from he's he flew all the way here from Long, Long Island. Like we're proud of it. Like you know like, <laughs> that they have like everyone's like he used to have, you know he used to wet his bed till he was nine. Like that he'll they'll, they'll say jokes and stuff like that that they've known about because they know these kids. They've grown up with them, and now they're twenty one, twenty two. They finally yeah. get to participate yeah. in Fireball. Uh, so mm. there's the Wampanoags first, and then they'll do all tribal communities. And so anyone that's tribal community, and then they open it up so white people are actually allowed to engage in this as well. Okay. Um, which I think is, is really cool that they open up that, that particular tradition to people that look like me or who, to people who, mm. you know, have worked for maybe 400 years to deconstruct those traditions. Uh, but, you know, maybe it helps to, you know, demonstrate the value of, of them. Yeah, by including people in a certain way. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, when, when I saw it, it seemed to me like nobody knew about this outside of the indigenous world, but that must have been somewhere around fourteen or fifteen years ago. Yeah. So I don't know if it's if the I don't know the circles have changed, but it was an incredible thing to witness, and it was like it was eye opening also because it clearly was important and solemn, and yet also not solemn. Right. Like it was those not, can be juxtaposed, and yeah, that's fine. And it was not a stereotypical. It didn't feel like the, my stereotypical imagining of a <laughs> okay. Native American ceremony. Yeah. Right. It yeah. was. It was what it was. So there's this amazing thread of history, right, that still winds through this whole this whole region, mm-hmm. right? One other thing that we kind of went past, but just for a second, is um, when we were talking about Gosnold, I think I mentioned earlier, they, as the voyage was going around, they encountered indigenous people, mm-hmm. right? And we don't necessarily know a lot about who they were. Mm-hmm. But apparently there was one group that was piloting a pretty serious boat, a shallop. So this would have been in Maine, I think. Right, in what's now Maine, yeah. yeah. And reportedly, this group of people knew some European words. I think they said it was a Basque shallop, if I remember correctly. Okay, so for one thing, there are Basques all over the place. Mm-hmm. Before even the English or French show up, even... Or, or Columbus, maybe. Or maybe Columbus, yeah. yeah. I mean, John Cabot, mm-hmm. 1498. Right. Henry the Seventh reign, he sails over to what's now Newfoundland, and he's saying, "Well, there are Basque fishermen all over the place." Mm-hmm. So, who knows how far back they were well, here? Well, if you know anything about fishermen, when you have a good fishing spot, the last thing you want to do is tell anyone about broadcast it. it. Yeah. So there's not yeah. going to be any written documents about this. The only yeah. thing you're going to find is archaeological evidence of mm-hmm. things things they would have mm-hmm. left behind, and we found that, and it's there, and we have things dating, dating predating 480, 1480. Um, well, there so. you go. <laughs> you, you know, know? like it, it's it, but you know we had to and them. there had to be interaction we don't know much about it but there had to be interaction between the people who lived there and these Basque mm-hmm. and when Gosnold encounters this group in what's now Maine they're reportedly wearing clothing like trousers mm-hmm. 
they speak. Well, they would have wore. They would have already worn trousers, but they yeah. were wearing like cloth Europe, trousers right. as opposed to more European style. Like, co- yeah, as no, opposed not to culottes. That's wrong. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, that's too upper class. But they spoke some kind of European language or words, and they very assertively just went up and started speaking and and interacting and trying to communicate with this English group, like apparently not shocked, just kind of interested in who is this new group showing up in their ship on our coast. And I think it just really underscores how like there's this whole, whole complicated prehistory that isn't just like, well, it was virgin territory and then some pilgrims show up and boom, you have an English colony. So I, I think one thing that we've left out in this conversation is our main man, Giovanni Verrazzano. Yeah, yeah. Who is Earth 1524. Yeah. And if there's anything you want to read now that you've read Gosnold, mm-hmm. I would recommend you read uh, Verrazzano's letter to the King of France, which he writes when he gets back mm-hmm. from this voyage. Mm-hmm. And he lands in Narragansett Bay and stays there for two weeks camps out for two weeks hangs out with the indigenous communities in 1524 in narragansett bay yeah um and he writes about how they're really nice he says that they they come right up to the ship he Mm -hmm. says one of them and this is interesting one of them gets onto his ship and helps him pilot it meaning at that point in time piloting does not mean you actually steer it but that essentially you stand on the bow and you point mm-hmm. to where you think the ship it's can come in. navigating, yeah. basically. Yeah. Which I think is is incredibly important and may, may demonstrate that there were earlier people. So they know how yeah. why, mm. where a, a ship this size can can come in an Narragansett Interesting. Bay. Fun fact, Narragansett Bay is one of the deepest harbors on the East Coast. And so they probably could go pretty much anywhere. Yeah. Uh, but he stays in, for two weeks in Narragansett Bay and then continues to sail north. And this is in this letter. Um, as he gets into what we would now call Maine... Um, he goes to like sail along into the coast to do some more trading, expecting that they're going to be as nice as they were in Narragansett Bay, and they all pull down their pants and show them their rear end. Mm-hmm. So the the native community all moons them, yeah, and essentially they're like, well, they don't want us. It's to a go diplomatic land mooning. It was, yeah. and it worked. They didn't land there. Yeah, um, but I think that what that demonstrates is that the indigenous groups that are farther north to where the, the cod fisheries would have yeah. been would We're have had a savvy. deeper, okay. deeper connection to European polities coming westward and interacting with them, and they maybe were sick of them. Whereas, say, the people in Narragansett okay. Bay wouldn't have had such a, a long, ex- extended interaction. Okay. okay. But so maybe it would have been interacting with their goods through trade routes from Canada, and so mm-hmm. they would have known. These are valuable people to be interacting with. They have these things that we do not. Iron, glass, etc. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So maybe farther north they were more savvy, right? Or knew what more the risks were. They're more cosmopolitan. They're more. Co- they're very cosmopolitan. How do you feel about that statement? These people are cosmopolitan. I mean, that's the big. That's the uh, big reveal, really, isn't it? Is like these people. Yes, were, I think it is. I think they it were is multilingual, yes. well traveled. Mm-hmm. Like these were not like isolated primitives mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. So I think we've talked a lot now. Eventually, it would be it would be cool to talk also about further into the colonial period and Plymouth and Rhode Island and all of this. Um, but maybe for today, tell us about the tours. So you have created oh. a sort of alternative historical tour, correct, of Newport. Yeah, right. The hidden history. Hidden history, yeah. and it's hidden because the existing institutions who shall remain nameless kind of present like a, a whitewashed you could say 
picture. Man, man right? washed. Man washed. Whitewashed. <laughs> hetero, hetero, <laughs> hetero washed. Okay. So what do you convey when you give your tours in Newport? Uh, well, you know, I one of the things I spend like the first 10, 15 minutes of the tour talking about the archaeological evidence that's been found from the surveys on the island, which demonstrate a, a 5,000 plus year consistent habitation on the island, mm-hmm. particularly in the summer period. And I think that's just important. I think that, um, you know, a lot of times, particularly in like a lot of the signage museums in, in downtown Newport, um, there's silences and erasures of indigenous people in dramatic ways, um, particularly like that people don't even know like that the word quidnic is like a native word like that that's really strange to me <laughs> they just think that that it doesn't occur to them okay yeah which is also the the word itself we know from john Eliot's bible who translates mm-hmm. the word island from a particular story in the bible okay to the word aguidnash okay which is the same word as a quidnic um and that's how we know that a quidnic island really means Island island. island island yeah mm-hmm. we have a lot of those redundancies yes in america. Lake, lake tahoe is one of them yeah <laughs> so <laughs> an, tahoe means one. lake in the local language so it's like mm-hmm. lake lake my favorite though is the yucatan peninsula i don't know if you know about that one yucatan just means peninsula no yucatan means i'm sorry i don't know what you're saying in the local oh, yes, language yes. <laughs> have you heard of the atlas of true names i no. don't have a copy but no. i really should get one someone made a world atlas where you see for each continent the translation of what the words actually mean, like the farthest back that you can trace them. And especially Central America, there's a whole row of, I don't understand what you're saying. That doesn't make sense. That was the place names that these Europeans learned for a bunch of places was just indigenous people saying, I can't understand this question you're asking me. And then what the heck, that becomes the place name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Yucatan maybe is a big example of it's that. Like one of my favorite, yeah. Yeah. So so I remember I took like a very early version of your tour. Mm. And you pointed out, uh, you know, businesses that had been started by Afro-Rhode Islander mm-hmm. artisans, mm-hmm. stone carvers. Mm-hmm. You pointed out sites related to the slave trade. Yeah. So Newport, we can maybe talk about this another time oh, because this is a whole yes, huge so, subject. But yeah. Newport was the capital of the slave trade in America. Yeah, North America. Yeah. In the 1700s. Yeah. And so a lot of the wealthiest merchants and magnates were triangular traders and it's, right? it's it's newport is important but it's also rhode island as a whole because you have james dewolf perry who's in bristol who in like 1805 yeah. becomes essentially the yeah. largest slave trader in the history of the north american uh-huh. slave trade a single man like yeah man, well woman. i can give you the later story where newport you know kind of crashed after about 1790 and the slave trade just moved to bristol yes because there were no inspectors to stop them in bristol they could get away uh... with it there were federal That's inspectors. That's why they didn't go, go to Providence. They went to Bristol. No, because, because there was like government agents there mm-hmm. actually trying to stop slave trading, but not in Bristol. So yeah. it just became like a free-for-all, got you it. know, like a pirate's haven sort of. But to be honest, Bristol was like a 30-minute horse ride from Providence. So I don't yeah. really know what the yeah. issue was. But. Well, all the ships were going in and out, like right past Newport and Jamestown. But, you know, you know how these things are. Yeah, so so you, it's the hidden history tour. So, like, how frequently do you do you do them? I don't do them very frequently. I, okay. lo- I would love to do them all the time, uh, but it's just kind of a service that I've created, and eventually it'll be appropriately um, advertised so that people coming, you know, there's over three million tourists that come to Newport every summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd really like to get some of that action. Yeah, yeah. Um, the tours are free. 
I think that's uh, important. So there's no uh, paywall to access history when it comes to the history tour. Though we do accept tips. Oh, okay. Sure that's right. Uh, okay. That's that's out there. But yeah. Okay. So uh, but we pick we pick tourists up. You know, as we do the tour, I can sense a tourist vibe from someone. I say, Are you guys tourists? This is a walking history tour. Would you like to join us? It's free. Um, and they usually do. That's really interesting. And then they get locked in and then they stay. That's I had great. someone's come to the last one and they said, oh, we have to leave like an hour in because we have to go have lunch with our dad. And I was like, okay, that's fine. Cool. And then I like an hour passed and they were still on tour. And I was like, you guys, what happened? I thought you were supposed to, they were like, we had to cancel it. <laughs> we had <gasps> to stay on the tour. With their dad. Oh my God. They should have told their dad to come that's join. That's what I said. I was like, this is a, <laughs> it's a walking history tour. What more yeah. dad thing can you be yeah, doing? Yeah, that's pretty dad. But, um, but it's interesting how people would respond because I think that there's a great appetite and great curiosity now to know history of indigenous people and african people which is enormous and, and these people call women yeah and women and who would have thought but at the same time there's also a lot of like discomfort yes. like a lot of people are like well i don't want to hear about bad things i don't want to be made to feel bad and so do you get some of both or do you just not hear if people are, no, are unhappy I, I think that i think that it's um i think that the people are that are taking the tour are seeking out are aware of the content. Yeah. Did have I did have one woman who was kind of a little kind of pushbacky at, at, okay. at a certain point, but then I kind of demonstrated that I you know, essentially knew what I was talking about, and then she kind of was like, "Oh, you know, what you were talking about. Okay, cool. All right, I guess. I guess you know some <laughs> stuff." Um, and and but yeah, and I also I also think that those there's tours for those people, and so yeah. that are pre-existing, and so, so they just satisfied. take okay. they just take those. Okay, um, I think it's it's. it's it's pretty incredible that you can go take a tour, you know, from the local historical society that has absolutely no conversation about the connection to the slave trade um, in Newport, which was the biggest money making. But I industry. think that part, I think, I think a part of that is if you, you know, are going to be tracing some of those slave trade names, you'll find that some of them maybe pair up with chairman or board member names. Ouch. Yeah, you know, so that you can't that there's there's particular uh, mm. revenue avenues that you can't silence otherwise. The historical society would not benefit. So, yeah. so, and that's again, you have to realize that a lot of times in public history that these institutions don't exist to maintain capital H history. That's like, you know, constantly engaging and developing. They're they're working to create a particular product, product that yeah. is marketable. It's more kind of boosterism, correct? Right? Yeah, but I mean, they're wonderful. We love them. They're fabulous. Some of them. Yeah. <laughs> It's and it, and with Newport in particular, Newport is wonderful. I love Newport, amazing history. But like in these respects, it it can be very similar to the South and to oh, doing yeah. Southern history of like plantation history. Yeah. Yeah. Oh well, here's this like huge thing. Are we gonna like pretend it's not there, or how do we? We're gonna get married there. It? Yeah, and get married. It's awkward, right? But you're doing the real public history work. In person, I'm trying face yeah. to face. And I, and I think one of the things that's I think uh, also fun about it is that I get locals that take the tour and be like locals that are you know 20, 30 years older than me, and they give me history. You know, I teach them yeah. all sorts of stuff. Mm. You know, but I every time I have a tour, I learn a new thing that I add into the tour and incorporate, like the things that you taught me mm -hmm. on when you took my tour. I mean, I don't remember anything I taught you. You say that I I gave you some important information. I don't. So the first three <laughs> degrees of Freemasonry in, yeah, in North okay. America. Well, probably at that time it was two degrees. Okay, That's the two degrees. Yeah, at the time. And in the 1600s, it was two degrees. And they were brought <laughs> to 
Newport in the 1650s mm-hmm. by a group of Sephardic Jews who had come to Newport to to practice their religion freely by way of New York, by way of Barbados, by way of Recife. Brazil, yeah. 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 It's that is that's some good Atlantic Atlantic stuff there. Some... And and that they they're, you know, that they so there's this interesting story of Jewish people being able to practice openly mm-hmm. in the British colonies in the 1600s. Mm-hmm. Um, Roger Williams talks about how he's praying alongside Jews and Turks. So he says that there are uh, Muslims that are also practicing in Rhode Island at this particular period of time. Um, and so it's really demonstrating itself, this kind of freedom of religion aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he also, Roger Williams doesn't like really work to try and like proselytize or to convert the local indigenous communities. He kind of allows them their own mm-hmm. freedom of religion. Um, just not big on well, the Catholics. Yeah. The, the papal antichrist. Yeah. Well, I think in future, maybe we should talk about, about these colonies, about Plymouth and about Rhode Island. Okay. There's, because they're, they're fabulous. And what did we talk about today? I don't even know. Did I we, mean, I think... we cover any ground? I see it as like we talked about the layer of history outside just settled English colonies, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the exchange and the relationships across all these national and linguistic groups, Mm -hmm. indigenous and European, Mm -hmm. which is like really the whole soup that all of these people were swimming in, right? Right. It was not just like, oh, boom, Plymouth shows up, Providence shows up in a vacuum. Yeah, no, there's a deep, there's a much deeper history. And I think, you know, that just because in particular instances, there might not be a plethora of written sources. I think we can rely on anthropological and archeological evidence and linguistic evidence kind of supplement um those silences and find out find out really really important and interesting things that provide context for these 1620 encounters and that's a really good point and i think that this is a huge dimension of how history as a field is changing right now is it's not just well let's pour through the archival documents right the archival documents only give you a certain picture of a certain aspect of the story right there's archaeology, there's ethnography, there's linguistics, mm-hmm. these whole other bodies of evidence mm-hmm. that are kind of like flooding in through the gates mm-hmm. into history. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for coming up and flooding through our gates here. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. It was, I mostly came for the punch. Yeah, yeah, it was mostly about punch. Um, but yeah, thank you, everyone, and thank you for listening. And this should be on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, other platforms. And if you can give any support uh, to keep these coming, go to my Patreon page. The link should be in the description. And also check my uh, Instagram out. Uh, it's at uh, Hidden History RI. Um, there's videos and geolocated photos that can talk about the tour that we were talking about. So you can kind of take a sneak peek of the tour through Instagram and watch my videos and see what I talk okay, about beautiful. on there. And then, you know, maybe slide into my DMs and ask for a tour. Yeah. Oh, we didn't even get into the stone tower. Oh we'll God! Save that. That, again, we'll this is save all, that. you need. I should have been taking notes of all the different oh other my God, episodes. Stone tower. Oh my lord! Next time. Next time. Stone right. tower. Stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. and there's the, a rock that's magnetic. You know about that? In the stone tower. There's like a like Cumberland, a magnetite. Do you know about oh, Cumberlandite? Man. Cumberlandite, like yeah, from there's Cumberland, a rock. Rhode Island. Yeah, there's a rock that's only in Cumberland, oh, and it's man. in that tower.
and it's magnetic. This is, this is, it's going to get weirder. It's going to keep getting weirder. We will have the Instagram in the description. Oh, great. And hopefully we, we will both be back. Thank you. Thank you.